morning is a call to holiness, which Peter gives us in his first chapter here. The first thing he says in regards to that is get your head on straight. We, that's a colloquialism that we use, but here's the way he says it. Therefore, that is in light of what we have been this morning is a call to holiness which Peter gives us in his first chapter here the first thing he says in regards to that is get your head on straight we, that's a colloquialism that we use but here's the way he says it
Seems like spring, but I'd be careful. Don't plant the uh, vegetables just yet. <laughs> there it is. For just as the, through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Romans 5:18. Seems like spring, Video series tonight at six. Movie night coming Friday, March 13th. Plant the uh, vegetables. The time will be to, uh, announced coming, and <laughs> we'll be at the Armstrong home with a cost of person. For just as the through the seven. disobedience of one man, his number, the Thank many were made sinners. Faithfulness. So also and the obedience see there, the, of the one uh, man. Memorial service has been set for righteous. Jack on Romans Friday, five. April 24th. And that's here. Seems like spring, series tonight at six. Get that on your calendar. Movie Couple night things that Friday, are not March in your the, uh, bulletin. Announced. SGBA ladies retreat. Friday, March 27th, Saturday, March 28th. Amy Baker is the speaker on the topic, Getting to the Heart of Friendship. Brochures and uh, lunch order forms are on the table um, outside the sanctuary. Sign up on the gather board um, by March 22nd. I don't know which days those are, so you'll have to look them up. Uh, we need to S uh, RSVP uh, the number of ladies from our church who will be attending. Uh, the lunch forms are included in the brochure. Please note, each individual attendee is responsible for filling out her own lunch form and texting or emailing a picture of it to Kathy um, Adelot, I'm sorry. Yes, Kathy Adelot, uh, by Friday, March 20th. Uh, her contact information is listed at the top of the lunch form. So we've got a form that looks like this. It will be out there. And if you are going, you need to let somebody know and fill out your form. So, all right. Also, deacons and elders meeting. Uh, today, after the service, we have a, a list of a few topics to go through. We're going to try to get through that quickly. No lunch, just a, just a meeting. So, all right. Yes, ma'am. There's nothing else. Our scripture for meditation is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, read 26 through 
Let's stand and ask for the Lord's presence as we meet. Tom, can I ask you to lead us? Thanks. morning. Um, we're going to make a slight change in the bulletin and turn to page 521 in the brown hymnal. It's the same words, but I think a tune that we know better. Is that right? Yeah. Is it right? Okay.
be seated. Got one, Ken? Okay, go ahead. What's your song? Five, six, nine. In the brown? Yes, 569 in the brown. All right, why did you pick this one? Yeah, we usually hear the first verse, right? And not any of the other really, really good verses to this song. Okay. I'm just saying, we can stand up for this one. <laughs> Scripture reading this morning is Romans, the fifth chapter, 
We'll be reading 17 through 21. Let's all stand. Again, Romans 5, 17 through 21, 1753 in the Pew Bible. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please remain standing. Okay. Um, 305 in the brown hymnal. Please. 305 in the brown hymnal.
Our scripture text this morning is Romans 5. Beginning at verse 17. In our series, Unto You a Savior Has Been Born, we have been studying the principle of representation, that is, that much of life is governed not by each individual mapping out his or her own destiny, but by each group of people having a head representative whose decisions affect the entire group. We use as an illustration, uh, for example, the UAW contracts and other unions as well would follow. Bargaining is not worked out on a personal one-to-one level between an employee and the employer, but through union reps who work with management representation to hammer out an agreement, which will in, in turn affect the entire group. So to Adam of Eden as the first man represented all men in his behavior towards God. And we know from the scriptures that he failed. Well, Jesus, who is scripture is called the last Adam, represents all of his, his people. And through his obedience, not one sin ever, through his perfect righteousness, what he accomplished for his group, is salvation. Now the law of God intensified personal sin. Adam had one law to live by. We have ten commandments to live by. And we die in Adam, but we also die because the wages of sin is death, and sinners is what we are. What we inherited from Adam was a sin nature. What we do with that nature is our own sinfulness how we live it out is different for each person jesus as the representative of his people provides the sinless righteousness that the law requires and grants us his righteousness as a gift 
He underwent real temptation to sin, but resisted. And he came out triumphant, not disobedient. His cross atones for all our sin, not sin in himself. So the combination of his righteous life and an atonement for our sin on the cross equals eternal life for all those whom Jesus represents. And as with Adam, we stand or fall by what our head representative has done. Amen. Well, today's study asks the question, how powerful is God's grace? How powerful is God's grace? How extensive is another way to ask it. How lasting, how effective is God's grace? So as we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Holy Father, thank you for your word and we praise you for it. We want to understand about salvation. We must come to the book of salvation and learn from the scriptures what you had in mind. I pray that you will bless us with the truth of your word and send your Holy Spirit to give us that discernment. Be with those that are ill, unable to be with us today. Bless them with your healing power. May their focus be on Jesus, uh, the great healer of men's souls as well as the healer of the body. We'll praise you for what you're going to do in our lives today in Christ. Amen. We want to talk today about the subject of abounding grace. Catch the word, abounding grace. The problem of more sin. In our last study, we learned that not only are we guilty as sinners because of our relationship to Father Adam, Paul says, in Adam all die, but we are guilty of personal sin, sinning, in degree and sinning in quantity in ways that Adam never did. Adam had but one command to obey, and when he sinned, Paul tells us of Adam, judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, verse 16. One sin. Wow. Think of that. Yes, Adam had but one rule from God to obey, and that was to abstain from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which grew in the middle of the Garden of Eden. He had one infraction, one act of disobedience to the will of God. That's all it takes. That's all it took to constitute Adam a sinner, worthy of condemnation and death. One sin. I think if men would just stop here a moment to ponder the significance of this, it would go a long way in helping people realize the standard of perfect holiness that characterizes God in all that he does. Maybe then they would not be so quick to excuse their copious amounts of sin as being trivial and unimportant. I mean, think about it. If one sin killed Adam and by repercussion all of his offspring, what will many sins do to you? What will many sins do to me? 
Paul tells us the law of God. Think again of Moses, the Ten Commandments. Verse 20, he says, The law of God was added, that is given, so that the trespass might increase. One of the Greek words for trespass here, and the one that's used here, literally means to sideslip in the sense of crossing the line. That's the idea of trespass. To exceed the border. Every hunter knows what this means. There are some farmers, there are some landowners who do not want hunters inundating their pastures because of the livestock they have grazing there. So they will post no trespassing signs on trees and posts at the entrance to their acreage. They don't have to say much more than that. I mean, it's their land, it's their livestock, it's their house or their barn that's in the thicket. And they may either grant or prohibit hunting on what is their property. We understand that. I'm not sure what the penalty for trespassing is. But I know historically that people have been fined for trespassing. They have been imprisoned for trespassing. They have even been shot for trespassing, right? Why? If for violating the law. Over in Lexington, there uh, were a number of teenagers who were arrested not only for breaking into cabins and stealing and vandalizing property over there, but for trespassing on premises which did not belong to them. Now, there was no posting necessary. There were no signs up saying no trespassing. It was understood that to go beyond the survey lines of a lot or the barrier of a window or the barrier of a door uninvited makes you a trespasser liable to the penalty of the law. It's understood. Adam stepped over the line on one commandment and the curse of God took effect. Bam! He was guilty. No ifs, ands, or buts. Death became his portion. Condemnation spoiled his paradise. He was banned from Eden along with Eve. Life eternal slipped through his grasp. And that was the aftermath of just one sin. Whoa. Think now of this truth, verse 20. With the initiation of the law of God given through Moses, trespasses increased exponentially. Instead of one infraction, sin leaped into the thousands, into the millions. Instead of one command to break, now there were ten times that. More if you ferret out all of the implications of those ten commandments. Paul says instead of one man sinning, referring to Adam, now look at verse 19. Many were made sinners. Wow, many. 
Many sinners trespassing, many commandments, multiple times, a flood of sin. Yeah, it's kind of almost an understatement. Verse 20, sin increased. Yeah, it increased all right. Things went from bad to worse. Lawbreakers became the rule, not the exception. Everyone and his brother was guilty. And by the day of Noah, which, by the way, was only two, uh, seven generations from Adam, 2.5 centuries. In 2.5 centuries, we read, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Genesis 6, verse 5. Talk about a bankrupt society. An impossible scenario. No one was exempt. Everyone was guilty. But the law of God through Moses intensified everything. James puts it this way. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet and yet stumbles at just one point, he's guilty of breaking it all. For the one who said, don't commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. James 2, verse 9 and following. And it would apply to all the other Ten Commandments. See what happens is that people want to pick and choose because they think some sins are less indicting than other sins. Disobedience to parents, not so bad. Stealing, oh, taking something that doesn't belong to you, very bad, very bad. Telling lies, passing on gossip and slander, not so bad. Committing adultery, ah, oh, very bad. However, in Romans one thirty one, that lists sins, let me read. Disobedience to parents is one of the righteous decrees which, if violated, deserves death. Whoa. Revelation 21 verse 8 lists all liars as companions with murderers, sexually immoral, occult worshipers who will share in the fiery lake of burning sulfur, which is the second death. Liars sharing the same fate as adulterers of the sexually immoral, the occult, occult worshipers, worshipers of Satan. So what James is saying, hey, whatever your sin, even if it were but one sin, makes you a lawbreaker liable to the penalty of God's law. One sin makes you a sinner. Imagine a defense attorney arguing for his client before a judge on a murder charge using this defense. But judge, my client only killed one person, not four. We say, how silly. 
And have you not heard enough court cases to know that generally there is a long list of offenses leveled at a person who has committed a crime? Oh, he gets slapped with obstructing of justice, evading a police officer, unlawful entry, possessing of an unregistered weapon, all this, and they just keep piling it on. Leading up to, yeah, and contributing to the break and entry charge or the charge of stealing as the case might be. It's not just one thing. It's this whole downward spiral. So Paul is so right when he says the law was added so that the trespass might increase. Sin did increase and multiplied guilt with it. We started out with one sin. But what Adam gave us was a sin nature. And in that sin nature, we, um, I hate to say it this way, but we improved upon Adam's sinfulness. We figured out how to do things which Adam never did. We took his sinful nature to its fullest expression. You hear some of the terrible things in the news and the sadistic things that people do to one another and the murder and the rape and the tortures and all of those things. You say, how could people do such wicked, wicked things? They inherited Adam's sinful, depraved, depraved nature. Well, all of that happened with Adam in the fall, but with that, God provided more grace. Look at verse 20, where sin increased, and it did, (laughs) grace increased all the more. Praise God. There are two Greek terms in this text for increase, and the NIV does an okay job of translating, but not the best job. None of the translations bring out the full meaning of the terms. The first term, where sin increased, means more in terms of quantity, to fill up. So the NIV is good here in using the word increased. Increased, you're getting more sin. Not good we have little problem seeing the rationale for which Paul's explanation given in verse 13. Before the law was given, sin was in the world. We know that because people died, right? Wages of sin is death. So before the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account. It's not counted as sin when there's no law. How can a person be legally guilty of being a lawbreaker if there's no law on the books to break? So death from Adam to Moses, as we have learned, was due to all people's identification with Adam as their father, their progenitor. And that's why Paul says, in Adam all die. Say, I didn't do it. Adam did it. And you were there with him in his loins, part of his progenity. Okay. So what happened when God finally did give his law for living through Moses. 
sin increased, and in this sense, now there was a law on the books prohibiting certain kinds of conduct, many more, by the way, than Adam's one restrictions. And with this new expanded standard, the trespasses were counted against those who disobeyed. So what was not counted as sin before suddenly was counted now with the result that sin increased. So what we're left with is the disobedience of Adam affecting all of his posterity. The descendants of Adam sinning in ways, can I say it, and to a greater extent, which Adam never did. What Adam gave was a sin nature, and what they did with that sin nature was, I hate to say it this way, they improved upon it. How do you improve upon a sin nature? They found a way to do it. One sin became many sins. One trespass of God's command turned into hundreds of trespasses, thousands of trespasses. Think of this kind of like um, as yeast, which is used in baking. Actually, Paul uses yeast as a symbol of the insipid influx of sin. When he wrote to the church of Corinth, that was tolerating known sin in the church. And he, of course, is upset with him for doing that. Here's what he says. Your boasting is not good, Corinthians. <laughs> Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are, for Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. 1 Corinthians 5. What was going on is they were tolerating a sinful man in the assembly, living in immorality and not doing anything about it. So he chides them for that. You need to get rid of this guy. Kick him out. Use church discipline. You're, you're happy and proud of yourself because of your tolerance. When you ought to be ashamed. When you ought to be horrified and kick the guy out. The sins of malice and wickedness were spreading through the entire church of Corinth because of acting like yeast going through a batch of dough. Now think of this. All that was due to the giving of the law of Moses. In a sense, things got worse. The law was not given to pull you up to God. The law was given to bury you. It was given to point out in no uncertain terms that you have no chance whatsoever, not in a thousand lifetimes, to please God and earn heaven by being good. And as if that were not bad enough, guess what happened since the birth and ministry of Jesus, God's perfect and sinless son. Let me read it for you. 
from Jesus' own words. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. And if I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen the miracles. And yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. John 15, verse 22 and following. Well, brethren, it's one thing to disobey the law of God. It's quite another to disobey and hate the lawgiver. So, folks, with every new expansive revelation of himself, God holds the recipients of that light to a higher standard the teachings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus that he performed, the recording of such in the Holy Scriptures makes all those who access have access to a Bible defenseless and without excuse for their sin. People cannot defend themselves by arguing, well, I wasn't there to see the miracles. Or, I wasn't there to hear Jesus' words. That's true. But you have the divine record of these events recorded by eye and ear witnesses of people who were there and were compelled by the Holy Spirit to write their histories with impeccable accuracy so that you are guilty for your unbelief just as though you stood that day in the crowds who could have reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garments of whom he said they hated me without reason. That's you too. That's me too, unless we repent. Sin increased from the giving of the law. And then once again, with the coming of Jesus, the lawgiver. So now what? Well, Man as a sinner is worse off than Adam ever was. He can't even breathe a breath without sinning. He cannot think a thought or do a deed that is pure and righteous. Well, we think we're doing okay. Actually, we're drowning in sin, engulfed in a dark sea of our own making. Sin is everywhere in our own hearts in our family, in our extended family, in our country, in all the nations of the entire world. And if you cannot, or excuse me, if you count from the time of the giving of the law to the present day, it is absolutely the mercy of God that we are not all cast into hell's fire right now. Talk about the long suffering of God. Wow. He is patient, patient beyond patience. But God has done more. Oh, he's done much more than just be patient. The second term for increase in verse 20, where it's sin increase, that's talking about quantity. 
Grace increased all the more. A different term. This is one of these places where the Greek really helps us. First term, where sin increased, yeah, came about numerically. More of it, more of it. Grace increased all the more. What's that word? Well, it's a word that means to have excess, to have more than enough, to have surplus, to excel, to super duper, anything. For example, at the feeding of the multitude in John 6, verse 12 and 13, says, when they had all had enough to eat, Jesus feeding here, you know, these, these people. He said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are in excess. It's the same Greek word as in our text. Gather the surplus. He goes on. Let nothing be wasted. And so they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five loaves <coughs> left over by those who had eaten. John 6, verse 12 and 13. That's the idea. More than enough. Excess. So if we just stopped here for a moment, what Paul is saying in our text would go something like this. Where sin increased... Grace was supplied in excess to meet that need. That is, plenty of grace to deal with any and all sin. This in itself is marvelous truth, is it not? It says to us that God is not going to be thwarted by the abundance of sin that men commit against him. That as marvelous as that truth is, and it is marvelous, Paul goes on to the extra mile to drive the point home by adding the prefix, you don't see it in here, but it's in the Greek, hypo, we get our word hyper from it. He adds that to the verb superabound, and in so doing, he accentuates the super part. So that it would read something like this. Where sin increased, God's grace super duper abounded. No popular English translation conveys this, though they all try. King James Version Grace did much more abound. NIV, grace increased all the more. New English Bible, where sin was multiplied, grace immeasurably exceeded it. That even sounds weak to me. Phillips, which he says is not a translation, and he's right, it's a paraphrase. But he captures the essence of the word, Though sin is shown to be wide and deep, thank God his grace is wider and deeper still. 
You see what the various translators are trying to do? They're struggling with this word that's in the text. And they're struggling with this word because this is the only place this Greek word is found in the entire New Testament Bible. Romans 5. I think Donald Gray Barnhouse, in my view, has the best understanding. And his translation says, Where sin reached a high water mark, grace completely flooded the world. Wow. It cannot be denied that with the entrance of the law, sin in men took on a whole new dimension. There was an explosion of sin. It is as Solomon wrote of the wicked, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet, because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them in their days will not be lengthening like a shadow. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11 and following. What Solomon is saying is that there is a kind of false peace in the wicked that ensues because they're not brought to justice quickly. Ah, they think because they have not been caught, they'll never be caught. Or because they've not been judged, they'll never be judged. And this emboldens them to sin all the more. I got away with it once. I get away with it twice. And after many times getting away with it, I'm on a roll here. One of the problems I have with postmillennialism is the notion that the world is getting better and better and will eventually usher in some kind of a utopian kingdom of God as Jesus returns. Is the world getting better and better in the spiritual realm? Well, yeah, I know. Increased knowledge through discovery, technology, advances in medicine, procedures, and so forth in science. That's all true. Yet none of this, none of this has curbed sin. (laughs) In many ways, it has contributed sin. The Internet, think about that, can be a cesspool for all kinds of wickedness, succeeding Pornography exceeding that. I mean, people's lives and livelihood have been ruined by rumors and gossip and slander and malicious talk. What would take multiple phone calls or letters in a smear campaign now takes seconds in a group email sent out on the internet to create havoc and foment false and damaging accusations. It's what Trump calls fake news. You can hurt a person's life with fake news, with lies, with slander. And all you need to do is sit there on your keyboard. You don't have to write a hundred letters. A tsunami of sin has engulfed humanity and the world is drowning in the mud and the filth that is choking and damning and those that are undiscerning. 
looks bleak, doesn't it? But praise God, the grace of God super-duper abounds to meet this challenge and to rescue sinners from self-destruction. That's what Paul is saying here. He adds the word, the little prefix, hyper. That's the idea, the super part, hyper grace. You know what hyper is. Remember the old Star Wars series when the Enterprise starship was under attack in danger of defeat and Captain Kirk would order his engineers to engage the rocket engines in hyperdrive. What would they do? Boy, in a split second, they would be gone into the universe at warp speed, the speed of light to escape the imminent danger. Hyper. You know, hyper grace is God's answer to increased sin. You may feel overwhelmed. <laughs> I sometimes do. That you may feel that you're drowning in failure, that you're going down with the last gulp. <laughs> you may think even God cannot or will not be able to help you. But Paul is saying that even when you are engulfed in sin to the degree that your death, your destruction appears imminent, God's grace can step in and whisk you away to safety. Hyper grace. Now what is, what are, excuse me, what are some of the promises of super abounding grace? Let's talk about that a little bit. Well, number one, it would mean that the promises of God, the promise is that God will not withhold his grace. That's a great promise. Don't predicate of God what you would do or have done when people have sinned against you. If you do that, you are constructing God in your sinful image. What do I mean by this? Well, simply that we as sinners treat other sinners not always as we would have them do unto us, but we treat them in hostility if they dare to hurt us in any way. The whole idea of getting even or I'll make you pay is part and parcel to the world's philosophy of what is done when people sin against us, but it has no part in the Christian faith. When John the Baptist preached against Herod, marrying his brother's wife, we are told so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. Mark 6, verse 19 and 20. And Herodias was offended by John's exposure of her sin. And so what did she do? She wanted to kill him. But that failing, she held a grudge against John and even looked for an opportunity to get even. At Herod's birthday party, Herodias' daughter pleased him with her dance, and he promised her anything that she wanted. 
So she came to her mom and said, Mom, what should I ask for? And she went back with mom's request. She requested John's head on a platter, to which the king complied. Such is the thinking of the pagan and the unbelieving. But God does not hold a grudge towards sinners and withhold his saving grace so that he can get even. No, he is super gracious. Sometimes we we withhold kindnesses and grace to others because they are blessed above us. And we think that's unfair. For example, Moses tells us Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing of his father given to him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Genesis 27, verse 41. Wow. Have you ever been slighted in some way by another? They received something that you wanted. They got it. You didn't. You determined in your heart, I'll make them pay. Sometimes, sometimes the Bible does speak of God paying people. But the payment is always based on justice, not sentimentality, not feelings. For example, flee from Babylon, we read in the scripture. Run for your lives. Do not be destroyed because of her sins. It's time for the Lord's vengeance. He will pay her what she deserves. Oh. Jeremiah 51, verse 6. And it's so saying, he said, it's time for the Lord's vengeance. It's time for his vengeance. God warns us that this is his prerogative alone, not ours. It's not ours to do. We don't get to play God. We are told, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12, verse 19. We don't get to play God. I'm very thankful for that. In the heat of the moment, in a time of anger, we would probably do things that are unconscionable. But more often than not, God operates with superabounding grace. And the sin, our sin, which is rightly earning a hot spot in hell, God forgives and he ends up making us a friend, not an enemy. He did this with Saul. When he was in hot pursuit of Christians in Damascus, that he might arrest them and put them to death. He says it. Jesus did not strike him dead. 
Instead, he converted Saul in a blinding light. And the great persecutor of the church became the greatest apostle of the church. And Paul never forgot this. Your life's end. Paul wrote to Timothy something like I would call it an abbreviated autobiography. And here's what he wrote to Timothy. Even though, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Wow, pile it on, Paul. Even though he was all those things, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace, I'm reading his words, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. It's a synonym for the word that's in our text. This super duper grace. Abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst, says Paul. But for that reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience. As an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. You know what he's saying here. If God can save me, he can save you. If he can save the worst, he can save the less than worst. He was so Enamored with this thought, he ends the text with a doxology. Now to the king, eternal, mortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 17. Timothy, what a great God we have. If God can save me, he can save anybody. Let me ask, do you think you have sinned as much as, as, much as or as wickedly as Paul? He says he was the worst. Guess what? Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's written the truth. He was the worst. Yet there was no withholding of saving grace on God's part. Even if you think of yourself as a hopeless cause, I can tell you that God's superabounding grace Dispels the hopelessness. You cannot out God's grace. You may be a blasphemer, a thief, an immoral man or woman, a liar, a cheat. You may have done a thousand things for which you are ashamed. Okay, you would never want a fellow sinner to know, let alone God to know. But God does know. He always knows. And in justice, he could strike you dead, cast you into hell, and throw away the key. 
But our text says that he has super duper abounding grace. Verse 21 calls it reigning grace. Reigning grace. So just as sin had a reign that resulted in death and still does for the unrepentant, God's grace has a reign for those that believe. And it reigns through the righteousness of Jesus and it results in eternal life, verse 21. God is promising not to withhold saving grace to those who seek him. Paul writes, in him we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Ephesians 1 verse 7. Did you know that God's grace is rich? That there's lots of it? It never runs dry? It's like that widow's jar of oil that Elijah. He'd dip in there and they'd have enough to eat. Enough to light their lamps. Look in the jar. Still full. Dip in again. Still full. Two days later, five days later, a month later, still full. God's grace is like that. And that's the second promise that God's superabounding grace will never run dry or be subject to loss. One of the hot topics of our day, or at least past days, has been the supply of oil in our country. Gas prices were inching up to $4 a gallon some years back. Everyone was projecting doomsday, you know. Somehow we're going to run out of gas or at least have to pay $5 a gallon and never materialize. The explanation for this doomsday prognosis was supply and demand. They said, oh, China, India, they're sucking up all the oil reserves. Simply, the supply is being depleted at an alarming rate. And so that's how the doomsday scenario arose. And it was a lie. What they discovered is that we have more ground oil underneath our feet than Russia and India and all of those places have. So they're doing fracking and under your feet, gallons and gallons of oil for gas. Well, even if the doomsday forecasts were true about oil or any number of other resources, don't think of the supernatural grace of God as being somehow in short supply. God is not dipping into a barrel marked grace and when it's gone, oh well, it's gone too bad. You're out of luck. Luck has nothing to do with salvation. Grace is like the widow's jars I've alluded to of olive oil. That Every time she dipped in, the, 
There, it was full. A second error here is that sometimes Christians already saved will co commit some horrendous sin, let's say embezzlement or adultery or slander, and because of it they will conclude that they have, this is the term they use, fallen from grace. Hmm. The one place this phrase appears is in Galatians chapter 5, where Paul was addressing people who professed to believe in Jesus as Savior, but, okay, they wanted to maintain Jewish law as necessary ingredient too. So they were saying this, salvation is obedience to the law of Moses plus grace. And Paul saying, uh-uh. So sorry, you got it wrong. If you add law obedience to grace, you cancel out grace. God's grace in the Christian life is not like radioactive material that loses some of its atoms daily. They call it half-life until it's all gone to the point where there's no energy left. No, that's not God's grace. As believers indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, you have 100% of God's grace available and operative 100% of the time. Wherever sin is found in you, and it will be found in you and in me as well, grace keeps you safe, keeps you forgiven again and again. Paul says it rains, it rains to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 21. Doesn't sound to me like it's wearing out, it's raining. So wherever sin is found in you, grace keeps you safe, keeps you forgiven. It rains to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is our Savior. This is the one that has been born unto us. No wonder Newton wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It is amazing. It's the well that never runs dry. And you need to trust Christ in his goodness, Christ in his grace, superabounding grace. Where sin is in your life, superabounding grace is there to reach in and rescue you, draw you to the heart of God, and keep you safe there for all of eternity. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the truth. We're not dealing with sinful men here and their little wiles and how they make promises they can't keep or make promises and then go back on their word. We're talking about the God whose promises are eternal and whose workings are from everlasting to everlasting. 
we're talking about what Newton called in his hymn. Amazing. <laughs> yes, amazing grace. And it is a sweet sound. It's sweet music to our ears to know about this grace that wherever sin is and wherever it is in our lives, and we are, are here admit today before you that we are sinners and that every day, every hour, we're sinning against you. But where sin is, super-duper grace abounds to forgive us and cleanse us because of the merit of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your great eternal work, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your sacrifice, for coming, for condescending, for taking upon yourself our human nature without sin and yet dying as the sin bearer for your people. We bless thee. We thank you this day. Amen. For our closing hymn, 465. 465 in Trinity. Stand as we sing.
got that song. That's right out of our text, right? Where sin abounded, grace did much more super-duper abound. Marvelous, marvelous grace. Well, tonight we continue with our video series downstairs. Six o'clock, bring finger foods, and we'll see you then. We are dismissed.